todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. my rock moment podcaster and instructor of California rock history, Amanda Mark joins me on this episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares to talk about some of her most intriguing episodes and how she got interested in these subjects in the first place. My rock moment focuses on music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and Amanda interviews those who lived it, including Rock and Roll Hall of Fame musicians, Grammy-winning producers, rock journalists, photographers, DJs, managers, authors, and filmmakers and entertainment personalities. And now I'm going to turn the tables and interview her. So let's get Amanda on the line. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Hi, Stacy. Thank you for having me. Um, well, it's really great to talk to you, having listened to your podcast uh, <laughs> for a few months now and following you on Instagram. So I'm wondering, what was the impetus to begin a podcast focused on classic rock? Oh, my gosh. There were so many factors that kind of went into it. But I would say, first of all, aside from the fact that I have a total passion for, you know, 60s and 70s uh, rock and roll, um, you know, I had lived on this strip for a number of years or just off the strip. And it was so wonderful to kind of be in that mix and be around that action. I actually lived, for those of you that are familiar with uh, Los Angeles, I lived on a street called Alta Loma, which is right next to the Sunset Marquee. Yes. And so I was going over to the Sunset Marquee all the time and walking into the Morrison Hotel Gallery, which is full of all of Henry Dilt's, you know, famous rock photos and things like that. So I started an Instagram that basically paid homage to the great rock photos of the 60s and 70s. Okay. This was years ago. Um, and so I was in the mix. I was talking to a lot of people and um, making a lot of connections, you know, with a lot of folks that were from that time and place. And then the pandemic hit. and it was heartbreaking to see how dead the strip was I mean as we all know the world stopped nothing was happening 
And I was missing, you know, um, my fellow classic rock uh, music lovers. And so we started a podcast literally just to have, just to have conversations with these people and to talk about classic rock. I wanted to hear their stories. I wanted to hear the moment that they would never forget, you know, whatever made them go into the industry or made them become a musician or made them become, you know, lifelong fans of a band or an artist or an album. I wanted to have those conversations. So my rock moment began. Wow. Well, you couldn't uh, have picked better timing, even if you had orchestrated it because no one was on tour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, my gosh. At none at all. People were sitting there with me with beers in their hands, cats crawling all over them. I mean, it was (laughs) the domestic life had gotten to them, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Well, like yourself, I am also native to Los Angeles and I remember hanging out on the Sunset Strip back in the day. Um, And it's really amazing that so many of those places are still there. Um, Why do you think the lore of that area and the era kind of endures and intrigues people who are too young to actually remember it? Well, I know. I mean, you know, I wasn't hanging out on the Strip either. Um, And I would say the two real heydays for the Strip were the 60s and the 80s. You know, Mm -hmm. there was a lot happening in the 70s, but I think the 60s and the 80s were really a magical time for the strip specifically. And there were so many bands during both of those decades. um, And most of them got their start on the strip. You know, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Van Halen, The Doors, all these bands got their start on the strip. And all that music endures today, thank God, right? So it's, I think, a real fun um, experience for people. I don't care if they're 15 years old or they're 75 to go to the strip and see within this 1.6 mile, you know, stretch, all the bands that walk the streets there, same sidewalks they're walking, walking to the same venues that they're walking into, and they got their start. So I think the intrigue is still there. As long as that music lives on, I think the the intrigue of the Sunset Strip is going to live on. Right. And like you said, the the 60s and the 80s, I think a lot of that music was, uh, the lyrics were focused on being young. And no matter what era you're young in, you can relate to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, going out and partying and having fun with your friends and staying up all night and girls. And, you know, I think, like you said, everybody can relate to that, you know, and the 60s were different in that rock and roll was just really getting started. And now all these young musicians, you know, out in Los Angeles, there was this real revolution happening um, within the music industry in the early 60s. And, you know, all these musicians from all over the country had one place where they could go, where they could find recording time, you know, in a recording studio, mm-hmm. with lots of venues um, to play at and, you know, perfect their, their act and their songs. The labels were out here. I mean, the 60s was a magical time for Los Angeles and the music industry. I agree. And you had also had... Um... California-centric episode recently, which was about surf rock, um, which I found especially interesting for obvious reasons, but um, (laughs) uh, 
Now that also flows into the so-called California sound, um, even though so many of those bands like the Eagles uh, came from other states. So yeah. um, what is one of the most iconic songs that you would say perpetuates this so-called California myth? You said the Eagles, and I think I'd have to actually call out two. I'd have to call out um, California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas, and then Hotel California by yes. the Eagles. Uh-huh. Those two songs right there. And what's interesting about them is that they bookend this really great era, right? So California Dreamin', you know, it comes out, it's 1965. That's when all these like Greenwich Village folkies are coming out West, you know, trying to make something of themselves here in California. And that's what the Mamas and the Papas spoke to. None of them were from California, except for Michelle Phillips, mm-hmm. you know, but they they spoke to this idea while they're sitting in this cold, dark, gray East Coast winter. They want to be on the West Coast in the sun in the sand with the palm trees. And then you've got the Eagles, you know, who come out with Hotel California, the song, and then the album itself in 1976. And that basically spoke to where Los Angeles and the music industry was at that moment. A lot had changed. It was far more decadent. The rock stars were if not just overtly far more decadent in their drug use, um, indulging in, um, you know, a lot of luxuries like private planes and things like that. It had, it had become so bloated and out of control. And that's what the Eagles were speaking to. The industry and the city itself, you could give in to um, every vice you had and indulge in every vice you had. And so that's what really Hotel California spoke to. But (laughs) it still acted like this beacon of light, you know, for so many people that wanted to come out West, despite what Hotel California was about. It really wasn't calling card for Southern California. I agree with you. And that's an interesting observation. You've got the the light idealized side and then the darker, more decadent side of California, which Mm -hmm. it has so many sides to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering now, uh, having done your podcast for a while now, what is one of the most surprising rock moments that you've covered? There were so many amazing rock moments that guests divulged to me. But most recently, we had on um, Roger Steffens, and he's a reggae historian. And he actually has the largest collection of Bob Marley memorabilia in the world. Really interesting guy. But he was talking about him leaving Vietnam, this is like 19, yeah, this is 1971, actually, uh-huh. and going to Marrakesh, he didn't want to go back to the US, um, you know, just really didn't see eye to eye what was happening here from a, you know, um, a government standpoint. And he went to Marrakesh, and he connected with the Countess de Boutaille. I think I just butchered that last name, because it's very French, but Americanized way of saying it is Boutaille. Um, and while he was visiting with her, her son showed up, Jean de Bretagne. Jean de Bretagne had a girlfriend or girl of the hour in tow, and that was Marianne Faithful. Ah, oh, okay. And they spoke to Jim Morrison's death. And he was looking, at, uh, Roger Steffens was looking in the papers going, Jim Morrison, dead? What? What are you talking about? He was looking in all the expat papers and everything. And Nothing came out for six days, but he was able to um, infer that they had fled Paris because of Jim Morrison's death. 
and you know that Jean was inextricably linked to the death of Jim Morrison. And obviously that story has since come out that he was probably the one that sold Jim Morrison the heroin that killed him. Yeah, that is quite a rock moment. (laughs) It was really interesting. He said to be there and be sitting with them at dinner and they were high as kites, you know, um, could barely function. But he would, you know, in putting everything together, it was like, okay, yeah, you fled. You fled Paris and there's a good reason why. Wow. Um, But that was a that was an interesting one to hear firsthand. Absolutely. So what is one of your own favorite rock moments? I know I'm sure that you've had a few. I saw a picture (laughs) of you partying with Ringo Starr. I mean, that's got to be right up there. Oh, gosh. Yes. Well, that was, you know, that was definitely a great one. That was his birthday at Capitol Records. He had his 77th birthday there. And I got to go along with a few other girlfriends of mine and got to meet Ringo. And I mean, it was a who's who. I turn around and there's Jeff Lynne. There's Joel Walsh. I mean, I I was losing my mind. (laughs) I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. You look very cool, calm and collected in the photo, though. Yeah, no, I wasn't. (laughs) I mean, you meet a Beatle and it's like, come on, you know. And then he went out onto the sidewalk and there were just fans flooding Vine Street everywhere. And he did the whole peace and love deal. But I mean, to be just standing there feet away while he was, you know, doing his thing and being Ringo and getting to meet him that day and, you know, on his 77th birthday um, was fantastic. But I think the rock moment that I'll never forget, because it was probably the one that really got me started on this road was when I was 12 years old. And I was a, I mean, avid watcher of the Monkees TV show. On okay. And um, I remember my mother's friend, this was probably 1991, called, called my mother up and said, hey, the monkeys are playing in Palm Springs. We should go see them. I was awestruck. I vividly remember that night watching all of them, Mike Nesmith, not there, but the other three, coming out on the stage and playing. And I was so mesmerized. And I told this story on my, you know, um, Uh, on my show as well, but I got to walk up to the front and I'm staring at Peter Tork and Davy Jones because Davy Jones was like my guy. I mean, (laughs) 30, 40 years younger. I mean, come on. (laughs) And I stuck my hand out and Peter Tork grabbed it and he kissed it. Oh, well, there were women all around me throwing flowers, what brassiers, whatever they had. And I was 12 and I just thought, well, this is all I got. And he cried. <laughs> he me, kissed it. And I didn't want to wash that hand for about 24 hours. Oh, it was the best. Oh my gosh. That was it. I was hooked. I was a monkeys fan. I was a classic rock fan from that day forward. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And I love how you parlayed it into so di- many different aspects of your life. I see that you teach rock history um, at Bradley University. Um, tell me what I... that entails and what's the purpose of the class? I do. So Bradley University is actually in Peoria, Illinois. Oh, okay. But for the brave kids that want to come out to Los Angeles and get an entertainment or music industry uh, internship and take classes, um, though that's uh, that's what I teach. That they're um, they're in my class, so they get to you know take four or five different classes, elective classes, and mine is one of them. And it's California rock history, specifically 1964 oh, okay. to 1976. That so, sounds fun. I wish you know, school was like that when I was a kid. 
Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. You know, the Beatles came in 64 and lots of things changed. So, you know, we we pretty much start there with the exception of some 1950s rock history. And then we stop at 76 with the Hotel California album and for the reasons that I told, just a shifting music industry. Um, but yeah, we have a great time. They hear all about the music. It's amazing to introduce um, this music and these bands and these artists to these 20, 21 year old kids. Most of them who have no idea what I'm talking about. Right. And they get the backstory on these artists, which endears them even more to the music and the band. You know, they get to know these artists, these musicians, um, not just their music. And it's incredible. We take tours of the Sunset Strip. We go out on the strip one night. It's fun. Oh, wow. And then do you show comparative photos or video to like how it looked back then as opposed to how it's now and kind of show like the passage of time? Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And I really do believe that when the semester's over, they have a real reverence for Los Angeles, the Strip, Laurel Canyon, all of it. Yeah, I think it's important to preserve history and historical places. And the only way you can really do that is with people who are going to be in positions of power in the near future and can help uh, preserve these places. Well, yeah. 100%. And the strip is dying. You know, there's a lot of great venues still there. But for the most part, a lot of these places are giving way to big residential high rises and hotels. And it breaks my heart. Yeah, it's sad. <laughs> I think the Viper Room, I don't know whatever happened with that, because I don't uh, follow it anymore. But it was going to be torn down for a hotel or so yeah. I think Frank Gary, the architect was involved with that. Is that still yeah. happening? That's still happening. The entire block is going to be torn down. Turner's Liquor is going down, and that's been there since, I think, the 30s. Oh, wow. Um, so that whole block's going to go down, at least, you know, as it stands right now. Um, and I think a high-rise or a hotel is going in, and I've heard rumors that they'll have some sort of area that pays homage to the Viper Room, but there will be no Viper Room. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, that mm -hmm. is such a historical place. Um, yep. And well, Hollywood has always kind of been that way. I guess the Garden of Allah was a big, you know, celebrity movie star breeding ground of creativity and debauchery. And that's gone. And Gazarius yeah. is gone. And Pandora's box is gone. There's a lot of places that you can say we're gone, but hopefully we can preserve what's left. Yeah. Yeah, or just keep it alive through the stories and the music, you know. I mean, the Garden of Allah is now a strip mall. Yeah. Um, you know, Pandora's Box, you know, that that whole little area isn't even there anymore. It's just like a little island in the middle of the um, of the intersection of uh, Crescent and Sunset Boulevard, which is why they wanted to tear it down in the first place. Yeah. You know, um, but, you know, it's ever evolving. But as long as they can keep the whiskey, as long as they can keep the rainbow, the Roxy, I mean, those three venues and that restaurant, um, they're the heart of, of the Yeah, strip. that's a great little strip right there that could be preserved. And I don't know if the Troubadour will ever go away. I think that's just too too precious. Yeah, during the pandemic, they, they shut it down. Mm -hmm. And I think there were a lot of people petitioning to try and save it, and they succeeded. So it's yeah. there. It's there. Thank God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. And thank goodness for your Instagram, LA Woman oh. Rocks, because I've been following that for quite some time. I didn't really, I guess, never you know, read the description. I didn't quite put it together that that's you, the podcaster. So, but I'm really impressed by the rare and unique photos that you find. And I'm just kind of wondering, you have so many followers on there and so many comments. Um, is that very time consuming? I mean, how much of your time do you devote to that? Yes. <laughs> I figured it would be. Yeah, it's very time consuming, but you know what? I mean, I enjoy it. I, that it's a it's a trip down, you know, rock and roll history lane for me every time um I post something. And I get true joy out of finding um something so rare, you know, uh and posting it for other people to see. A rock moment in time. There's nothing stylized with people that follow me, they know. There's nothing stylized about the photos I put up. These are candid behind the scenes backstage photos of rock stars in their element being themselves, which is good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I enjoy it and giving the backstory and finding the photographer, which can be very difficult at times. But yeah, I like that you put, you know, even if you don't know who the photographer was and you'll state that. And I imagine some people do come in and say, oh, the, you know, give you the information on who took it and. Oh, all the time. As you know, on social media, people are quick to tell you when you've got something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Um, I mean, you get a lot of comments. Do you read all of those and respond? And I try to. I try to. You know, a lot of people, the, the, the comments are, are innocuous. And sometimes, you know, um, they get going on a tirade. And I don't like to fan the flames. You know, yeah. it, strikes, it strikes an emotional chord for them. For whatever reason, I don't want to get involved, um, and I let it be. You know, it's a different time and place. Um, people have trouble contextualizing things sometimes. This is true, and that does lead to my next question about, you know, how do you feel about presentism and, you know, classic rock, rock musicians? Um, a lot of the people that are commenting and looking at these um accounts they weren't around at the time and they kind of seem to be judging yesterday's actions by today's standards and I know that you don't get involved which is definitely the smartest thing to do to not um, try to re-educate people but I mean how do you feel about that uh, yes I deal with that on the regular and you know a lot of what happened back then wouldn't fly today and I'm not condoning it by posting anything um, but I do think we learn from each generation. Um, you know, there were some horrible things that these rock stars did, both men and women, right? Mm -hmm. But I also don't believe that they should be punished for their indiscretions or acts for the rest of their life. Um, so I let a lot of people say what they want to say. And I don't, like I said, I, I don't comment. Um, but I do think sometimes we have to, as I said, contextualize things. that what was acceptable back then or permissible today would be um, met with severe punishment. I mean, I think about the antics of Led Zeppelin on the Sunset Strip alone, mm -hmm. you know, some of the things the Stones did back then. Um, and, you know, I see a lot of my students gasp when they hear like a salacious or lurid story about the bands or an artist that we cover. And I ask them, can you separate the man from the music? Do you want to, you know, because nobody's perfect. 
especially a lot of musicians are listening to <laughs> it today. It is a choice, yes. And also, I think um, a lot of people don't realize just how prevalent drugs and alcohol were and how that is mind and mood altering. And it makes you lose inhibitions and do things that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily do if you weren't um, under the influence. And not to say that's an excuse, but it's an explanation. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and we talk a lot about these, um, you know, rock stars that have overdosed and um, just couldn't get it together, you know, from a substance abuse standpoint. And I said, again, there wasn't the help or the support back then. You know, they weren't just jumping into A&A or therapy or what it, whatever it was. Their therapy was the drinking. Their therapy was the drugs. Um, and that's how they coped and they lost their lives because of it. You know, um, I think they all can understand that if they take a moment, you know, to, to think it through. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't on social media. Um, you know, it's a soapbox they can stand on and, you know, sound all high and mighty. When right. we know that 20 years from now, we're going to be judged for the things that we're doing. So <laughs> exactly. you, learn. <laughs> yes. you have to be very careful. <laughs> oh, gosh, no kidding. No kidding. With those cameras all around. <laughs> oh, man. Right. Um, but I want to kind of, you know, touch on what you had said about people losing their lives to drugs, especially at a very young age. Um, you know, I think of Tommy Bolin, who um, overdosed at the age of 25 when he was opening for Jeff Beck. And he was an incredibly talented guitarist that a lot of people have never really heard of now. They don't remember him. But I'm wondering if you can name some great, uh, great classic rock bands who maybe haven't stood the test of time or maybe they passed away too young. Um, so we don't hear about them in pop culture now, um, but deserve to be heard by younger audiences. Right. There's so many. Um, and I think I lose, um, you know, a perspective of what these kids know and don't know because I'm so in it all the time. Yeah. But love, the band love is probably at the top of my list. And I didn't even know who love was a number of years ago, um, which is quite sad because they were one of the biggest bands to come out of L.A. in the 60s. And they had their seminal album um, Forever Changes, which many artists and bands of today still cite as a huge inspiration for their music. Yeah, I remember Robert Plant talking about uh, love. In, in, in interviews and cream and hit parader and you know in the 80s when I would go back to uh, used record stores and bookstores and find those magazines and you could see who their influences were but you're right not many people talk about love anymore mm -mm. no they just faded away and you know they broke up in the 60s as well um, but they left an amazing catalog of work and they were one of the first interracial bands um, as well to be out and about. And while that's pretty awesome, I also think that may have contributed to their downfall too. You know, um, they may have been, you know, according to Arthur Lee, who was the, the front man, the, the lead singer of the group, um, not as well received in certain areas of the country. So there was a hesitation to, you know, travel, to tour. Um, True. And there was segregation and a lot of uh, states still back then and then mm -hmm. there's also fanny one of the first all-female rock groups that really right. doesn't get the glory that say the runaways does mm -hmm. yeah most people don't even know about fanny 
you know, and I would encourage people to sit down and Google it or look on Spotify or Apple Music and really try to take in some of their their music. Um, it's an experience. The Flying Burrito Brothers, you know, you talk about Gone Too Soon. Mm-hmm. Um, Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman had come over from the birds and or come from the birds and they started the Flying Burrito Brothers. So if you're a country rock fan, they're not to be missed. Unfortunately, Graham Parsons died in 73 at only 26. And I think that's part of the reason that they didn't make it as big. You know, the zombies. I, I, I thought that was a mainstream group. You know, most people don't know the zombies. These are all British invasion bands. Dave Clark Five, Donovan. The zombies did um, tell her no. She's not there. Time of the season. Yeah, know, we hear uh, those uh, songs and movies a lot now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And people are going, who's that? I like that song. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, but um, there are so many uh, bands from that time and place that just didn't graduate, you know, so to speak, into the mainstream. There's such a, a great pool of music that we haven't really heard because the the popular groups that have endured. I mean, if you even go back to the Rolling Stones, and there's so many albums that they put out in the 70s, but we really only listen to two or three of them still. So there's a lot to delve into. There is. And you know what? These kids, they have no excuse. That's right. It is, it is at their fingertips right now. Uh-huh. And, you know, it kills me that the thing to do was walk around with these band tees. And most of these kids have no idea what they're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> I said, really? Are you a fan? Are you a fan of Black Sabbath? Yeah. Name oh. three songs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. It reminds me of the meme of, uh, what was it? Courtney Kardashian wearing a Slayer t-shirt. <laughs> don't like, do it. it. Yeah. It upset me. I saw that too. <laughs> funny. Yeah. But um, I want to go back into, because we were talking about Fanny and like classic rock is such a male centric genre. And, but you've had some amazing women in rock on your show. And I'd love for you to put the spotlight on them. Honestly, Stacey, I wish I had more women in rock, to tell you the truth. Um, You know, aside from Pamela DeBar, who was just, I mean, a fantastic interview because there's no hold barred there at all. She says it like it is. You know, she she wrote her book. I'm with the band. And so, um, you know, it it was just anything I asked, she um, she answered with uh, great candor. And I appreciated that. Um, but I also had, if you're in the LA area and uh, you were listening to um, KLOS or 100.3 The Sound, I had Rita Wild on. Oh, you did? Oh, I yeah. missed that one. I love her. She's awesome. Oh, she's incredible. I mean, so kind, so gracious and wonderful. And when she got on with me and I heard her voice, it was such a trip because, you know, you hear <laughs> yeah. a voice for so long on the radio. I'm Rita Wilde, you know, and then all of a yes. sudden she's in front of you. I mean, she could lull you to sleep. Her voice is like butter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. she should uh, read audiobooks now for a living. <laughs> I mean, what is she? Should. Yeah, I guess she's probably on Sirius XM or something, right? I don't know what she's up to no, now. She's not on Sirius right now. Um, she's got her own podcast as well, but I don't think she's doing radio at the moment, but that may change. Um, she's doing things here and there, you know, um, concerts, introducing bands, things like that. But gosh, the stories she had. And then growing up in Southern California as well. You know, there were so many great moments 
she had of, you know, trying to sneak up to the Sunset Strip in the 60s and see the doors and not telling her parents and, you know, (laughs) driving through Laurel Canyon and all of that. But um, yeah, I would encourage people to listen to that episode because she was she really was fantastic and a wealth of obviously a wealth of knowledge. I mean, she was at the forefront of everything that was happening here from a radio perspective, um, you know, from the early 80s on and was good friends or is good friends with Jim Ladd, who is an institution out here. Oh, absolutely. I have his book, Radio Waves, and he actually gave me a blurb on one of my first books that I wrote and such a nice, giving, kind person and an icon. Oh, an absolute icon. And how amazing that he helped you out with your book. Oh, that's so great. There couldn't be a better voice. I know, right? Um, Yeah, but Rita Wilde is great. Um, I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting about his book, and I'm sure what she says on your podcast, is that back in the 70s and 80s, that bands would actually come to the radio stations to give interviews. And that's not doesn't happen now. No, not at all. They would come in and they would they would sit down and take the time I had. Um, Oh, a guest, John Scott, on uh, this was quite a while ago, and he is essentially credited for discovering Tom Betty and the Heartbreakers. And he fought tooth and nail to get um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers signed, and he got them signed. This was late 70s. Um, uh-huh. You know, their, their demo record at the label he was working at had literally been thrown in a closet, and he found it. And he petitioned to get them signed. But anyway, he took a job... Um, Oh, gosh, at the Northridge, CS, CSUN, Cal State University Northridge radio station, uh-huh. um, just for fun. This was the late 70s. And his first guest that he brought on was Tom Petty. And he had like the, the midnight to 6 a.m. shift. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and they had given him the job and said, look, if you can bring some guests in, we'll give you the job. And he said, well, you know what, I'll, I'll, for my first show, I'll bring a guest in. And Tom Petty walked in. And I think Dan would come out and everything. And they were like, you're hired, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's impressive. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. Um, But yeah, back then, that's what they did. They don't do that anymore. Yeah, times have changed. But I'm glad that we have uh, folks like you keeping it alive and bringing people to the forefront that maybe others haven't heard of. Um, Now, I've got to ask you my standard closing question for the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast, which is, what is your own personal rock and roll nightmare? See, I wrestled with this one because I don't have a personal rock and roll nightmare. Um, But I guess I will reference what we've talked about. A nightmare to me would be to watch the strip completely give way to these high rises. Yeah. Um, and lose the nostalgia and the character and everything that made the strip as magical as it was. Living so close to it and watching it change, building by building. That is my nightmare. And I would say another nightmare is as these new generations are coming in, the day, and I don't think this is ever going to happen, but the day when those 60s and 70s hits um, are not part of Future Generations playlist. That is a nightmare to me. And, you know, listener by listener and student by student, I'm doing what I can to make sure that doesn't happen. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Amanda, for that. <laughs> and for, <laughs> for, yes, that's kind of a, a heavy burden you've taken on for yourself there. I mean, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying that's it. Good. That's good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I mentioned your podcast and your Instagram, but um, what is the best place that ideally for you that fans find and follow you online? You know what? I think everything, all the information on me, on the podcast, on my Instagram, um, is probably um, all, you know, in one uh, central location on my website. So that's myrockmoment.com. Okay. Very easy. They can go there. They can find info on me and everything else and one-stop shop. Right. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks, Amanda. It was really a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you better and best of luck with all of your future endeavors. Thank you, Stacy. I appreciate it. I loved being on. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. Wish by-